Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. Welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns, and I'm here as always with my co-host, P.T. Weinberg. What's up, P.T.? Hello, Michael. How are you? And we are excited to have Ricky Beliveau from Volney Capital, uh, and I think we want to talk about his, your beginnings and then all the way up to now doing some high-rise work with things like uh, Sky Everett, which is pretty incredible work. So um, uh, you have an incredible story to tell that we're excited to, uh, to talk about. Welcome. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for being here. Yeah, we can uh, maybe just dive in and tell us a little bit. How did you get into the real estate development uh, business to begin with? Yeah, so I mean, back when I, I went to Northeastern University and then my original uh, thought with real estate was really that it was just going to be a passive income for me, right? So I was going to buy rental properties and that those would be an additional way for me to make money to, to you know, be a supplemental income to my job in finance. Um, that's how it started. And then by 2013, I had acquired three properties and the market had started to shift in Boston. And that's when I started doing condo conversions in East Boston. And that really opened up my eyes to that there's, you know, multiple facets of, of real estate. Like early on growing up, I thought of real estate as the house you live in, mm-hmm. right? That's all you kind of, my parents didn't own real estate or rentals. It was the house you live in. But there's just so many different avenues you can go after. And so that's like kind of when I realized that there could be real estate development could be a career. And, and what was, how did you get started on those first couple of deals? I mean, you were young, obviously, just stuck getting out of college, I, I think, right? And yeah. so how did you, how did you get started with, I'm assuming you didn't have a, have a, have a bankroll at that time. Yeah. So it all started back senior year in Northeastern. I took a class on real estate finance, right? And so it was my capstone uh, pro- project where I actually analyzed multifamilies around Boston, including Mission Hill. Mm. And I ran the numbers and I like went back to my professor and I was like, is this right? Like you can make this much money. And what had happened, this was in 20, uh, 2009, 2010. Yeah. Like rents had been flying up around the colleges and values had been coming down. Right. Post 08. Right. Yeah, of yeah. course. So they were just, yeah. and like, I was the only one that was just young and dumb enough to buy one. <laughs> right. These had been sitting on the market. Like people were like, how'd you get a property? Cause these things I was, I paid nine thirty. 130,000 for that first property, it now appraised for almost like 28. Mm. They're like, how'd you get that? And I was like, well, it was on the market for over like 400 days. <laughs> <laughs> I just called the agent. <laughs> Put it in an offer. Yeah, it wasn't like I door knocked or anything <laughs> right. special. Yeah, it was yeah, just, yeah, yeah. hey, it was there. You take advantage of the little lady. No, no. Yeah. So, um, so follow, you know, ha, you know, decided that I wanted to do this as a supplemental income and then went to my mother who had inherited some money and said to her, hey, this is my paper that I did in, on, in class. I want to buy a similar property to this, and I want to make it a cash-flowing mm. rental property. And she trusted me and, gave, and gifted me that money. And then I did an FHA loan to buy that first property, which anyone who doesn't know the power of FHA, it still exists today. There aren't, they closed up some of the loopholes that I got to use back in the <laughs> day. It's a little more difficult, but yeah. you can buy you can get a large mortgage with three and a half percent down. And, you know, one thing I think people don't understand about that is like, it is a huge asset for a newbie to be able to do that. Because if you're looking at a property and you're looking at it from a return standpoint, a guy like me buying a million dollar property now, I have to put down 300,000 or more Mm. of cash, right? So 300,000, a newbie buying that property, right? For a million dollars, 
is only putting down 3%, mm. right? So you're talking about 30 grand, right? So when you're looking at the comparison, when you're, yes, they have a bigger mortgage, 100%. But right. what do they actually need to clear from a cash flow, cash flow perspective? It's much smaller. If they make 30 grand, that's 100% return on their cash. Right, right. If I make 30 grand, I made 10%. Right. Right? So like there's, it's yeah. just a different way to look at it. So um, continued buying rental properties and then, you know, uh, made the jump into the development space. But still, I think if you look at our core businesses, like, yes, we are doing a lot of condo development. Yes, we are doing large-scale development, but we're still buying a lot of triple-deckers, mm, right. right? We probably bought around the city, like, between 60 and 70 units last year, mm. um, you know, of multifamilies ranging from, on the small side, three units up to 26 units on the existing inventory. Mm. And how do you how do you divide your time in terms of you know and sort of investment capital whether you're looking at this um, sort of land development maybe big high rise like Sky Everett for example versus buying the 26 unit or even like the three unit how do you how do you sort of think about that from from a from a time investment and a, and a capital investment Yeah, so I think talk. Let's start with capital, right? And I think capital comes back to your network, right? And you know, there's you can't scale this type of business only using only your own cash. You'll never get anywhere, right? Started with my mother; she gave me that first loan, right? Then the next couple loans was through other friends and family, and the business has grown through friends and family and through meeting people and understanding the power of giving people solid returns. Mm -hmm. They will continue to invest with you. And now you're able to build a bigger and bigger bankroll to do more projects and different types of projects, mm. right? And so like when we made the jump into these large projects, it was a mix of some of these investors who had been investing with me on like two unit condo conversions are now putting 250 or 500,000 into an 85 unit development because mm, right. they've grown with me, yeah. right? And so, uh, and then from the time perspective, it just comes back to team, right? I mean, it's... You can't run all the businesses and have your, you know, be 100% committed to any of them. You need to have people working on each one that allows me to step back and look at the big picture, yep. right? And I think a lot of our businesses are all interconnected and that's very intentional, right? You have Volney Capital, which builds condos and buys rentals. You have Evo Real Estate Group, which sells our product and also leases our product. You have our management company that manages our own and others, as well as generates leads for the Evo. For Evo. And then now we have Evo Origin Funding, which is actually able to invest capital into developers' projects who list through Evo, mm. right? And so now you connect all those pieces and now everything's feeding each other and I get to kind of sit above and make sure that all the pieces work together. Yeah. We, we, we talk about sort of similar strategy in terms of building a flywheel with the with different businesses and business lines that feed each other and can, you know, and we can service clients across the whole, you know, their whole life cycle of needs. And so it's similar in that regard. So, you know, totally makes can make a lot of sense. Is it how do you, how have you found it, well, have there been challenges to building the team that can, you know, execute against your vision there? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, being, I, I am a big believer in staying lean, right? I don't think people should jump into these businesses and hire a bunch of people. Headcount kills, right? If you all of a sudden have too much headcount, you're going to make no money and it's going to kill your business. It's just going to drown it out and you're going to be stressing about taking on bad opportunities or bad deals to try to cover payroll. Mm. And you'd never want to be in that situation. So it took me a long time to get comfortable for that first hire. And so Chris Pruel, I had no interest in hiring anybody. And Chris was at Deloitte and he had heard about me through a mutual friend, followed me on social media, 
asked for a meeting, came into the office and said, I'll quit my job and work for you for free. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not hiring. He's like, I'm going to show you that you're, you want me. I'll quit Deloitte. I've been there for three years, making over 150 grand a year. I don't care. I want to be in real estate. I want to work for you. And I'll quit my job. And I was like, I mean, all right. It's <laughs> a tough one to turn down. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so then I gave him the shot. He showed his value. And I think from that point forward, you've seen Volney Capital over the past four years. It's been a hockey stick. A lot of that goes back to Chris being able to take a lot off my plate and do the things that you know are important for that type of business, right? I'm still the one doing most of the lead generation, making the decisions, working with the investors in the banks, but there's a lot that goes into getting these projects you know, to the, to the, to the starting line and then to the finish line. Mm. And, you know, that's where he's been a huge, you know, huge value add. Awesome. So what's his role specifically? So he's just like my number two. So okay. he's, you know, pretty much at this point runs Volney Capital. Okay. You know, so I'm, you know, obviously sitting in on the top, but like from a day-to-day operation standpoint, if you had, if I had to figure out what's happening at one of our development sites, I would call Chris. Yeah. That's good, it, you know, and it's incredible that something works out like, like that. But I think, not, I think we're jumping ahead a little bit, but we're going to talk about the, sort of the power of personal branding and the marketing you put out there. I'm, I'm going to assume like that was one of the things that you got back because of that. Like someone wants to come work for you, and that way they'll, they'll work for free. So is that is that kind of how that? Yeah, came up? I mean, I think you know the idea of putting yourself out there of what you're doing. Like when we started the Instagram account. A long time ago, Instagram had just started when we made the initial, my first, obviously my personal account, but then the Volney Capital account. And there wasn't anyone really sharing what they were doing in their business on there. It was all people posting their dog. Right. right? It was like, oh yeah, me and my dog. Like, yeah, you know, I don't know why you pictures. gotta talk about PT like that yeah, right now. I but. know. I looked at your Instagram <laughs> from back in the day. Yeah, it's, it's basically just my dog. Uh, you know, we started really putting out our product on there. And I think that's, it was, it was crazy that people all of a sudden, because HGTV was around, mm, right. those shows were popular, and now we were just doing that on a localized scale, and all of a sudden followers kept piling on, mm. piling on, piling on, and the brand started growing, right? And then that's when we pivoted and added kitchens of Instagram, bathrooms of Instagram, and all of those accounts because we realized that Instagram in its infancy, really early on, there was going to be a huge demand for people to follow inspirations accounts around like the HGTV concept, mm. right? And like you, it's like, how did we get to one and a half million on the kitchens of Instagram account? It was just organic. Like it was just right. growing t- 10,000 of people a week were just starting to follow it. And it was just climbing and climbing and climbing. Um, and so that's allowed us to build our brand so that people like Chris could know who I am. Yeah. Or people call me up and they say, hey, I've got a piece of land that uh, I need to sell. Or a real estate agent who wants to make the jump because they, you know, they want to learn the development space and they're, you know, they, they're working over at uh, you know, horrible brokerage like Compass and <laughs> they want to make the jump over to Evo. Um, and you know, those are you know, a bunch of upsides we get from uh, the social media. Awesome. And, and so to kind of jump back into the, uh, the, the sort of story of where you're going with the business, um, how did you evolve it? Like, what was the first foray into the development side? Like, from the, from the buying existing multifamily to development? Yeah, so it actually, the pivot occurred, and this is, you know, I've spoken about this many times before, is like the idea that you need to be able to pivot and you don't want to, you can't be stuck in one, in one lane and think you're going to be successful. Like, Bumps happen. Like you need to be able to change paths. And at the time, we're in 2013, 2014, 
everybody was trying to buy multifamilies, right? Everyone had woken up from 08. Five years after, <laughs> all the cash was flooding back into the yeah. market. And now little Rick is competing with these cash buyers who are trying to buy the same multifamily as me right. who don't care about cash flow. They're buying solely on appreciation. They're right. like, the market's taken off. I want to buy. Yeah. Well, I can't buy based on a, a building that's losing money every month. No, no bank's going to finance me, and I'm not paying cash. I don't have the cash. So what I realized was I was in South Boston at the time, and people had started doing condo conversions in South Boston. Mm -hmm. And I had looked at them, and there was a lot of competition, and people, and the buildings were already pretty expensive, so it would have taken up a lot of my cash, yeah. my own and, and my parents and my, my circle. So I looked. I was like, East Boston. I was like, that's where it's going to happen next. I could tell. I worked in finance. I could be to my, like, I could be to Eastie in 10 minutes from yep. my desk. Right. It's like, how is this still pricing at 400 to three family? Yeah. Right. And so that's when I made the jump to Eastie. <clears throat> but the problem was I wanted to buy a rental in Eastie. Everybody was buying rentals and they were paying way more there, you know, than I would for a rental. That's when I decided I was going to do what they were doing in Southie and pivot that into East Boston. Mm -hmm. And we were the first one to start doing condos in East Boston when everyone told me I was crazy. <laughs> no one's going to buy that. That's many times. Like, right. No one's going to buy a condo in Eastie for 380 grand or 400 grand. I was mm -hmm. like, I think they will because Southie's five, you know, already up to the fives yeah, at, least right? at, that at the point. time. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. yes, they will. And they did. Right. And so once we got into that, we started doing, we probably did 10, three family condo conversions. And then during that process is when I learned the process of entitlement. Right. Mm -hmm. So Rich Linz is my zoning attorney, still is to this yeah, day. He's great. Yeah. And he opened my eyes to the idea of we can take a single family and it can be permitted for a nine unit. Right. And this is the process and how it's done. And like now I think back and I'm like, it's so secondhand for me to like understand that process. But at the time I had no idea, yeah. right? And so that opened up the idea of, of entitlements, which is now our core business is we don't buy permitted projects, right? Yeah. Like right. we permit our own projects. Can yeah. you can you talk a, like a little bit more in depth on your kind of general approach to entitlements and some like couple of specific executions on that. I know obviously you've got John working with you as well on the V10 side yeah. and on the bigger stuff and just um, you just kind of talk about a couple specific ones where you really sort of, you know, knocked it open and, and really, um, you know, talk about how you how you analyzed it and executed it. Yeah. So I think the, the interesting part is like is it's going at the basic level of permitting even like a two or three family and permitting Sky Tower, which the process was all exactly the same. <laughs> it's like, it, honestly, it's the same process. And like sometimes you, on a lot of these big projects we're doing now, it's actually easier because you get the attention of yeah. the city and the politicians and the, the planning department. And you can get a meeting whenever you want because this is an impactful project for their community. Right. We're on the small projects. A lot of times you get pushed to the side. But I think one thing when you're looking at doing a deal from an entitlement standpoint is you need to be extremely cautious of the downside risk, right? And I've seen so many people get into big, big trouble on the on an entitlement deal. And what I mean by that is just using a basic example. Say you're looking at a single family. I'll use a, a single family in East Boston, right? I just bought it and I paid cash, right? I bought it about a year ago. And I paid 800000 for it. And it was on a double lot in, in Jeffrey's Point. You're like, but Ricky, your core business is typically offering with a contingency, 
right? Well, in this scenario, I knew that I, on that site, as of right, without any variances, we could build four units. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I'm paying 800 in Jeffrey's point, and in a doomsday scenario, I have to build a four unit, I'm still breaking even or up a, a couple hundred grand. Right. Right. And the, the hope was start at seven and end somewhere between five and seven units. Right. So in that scenario, I was okay paying cash because I had protected my downside by understanding with an architect what the as of right option would be. And that would allow us to be able to still get out with our shirt on. Whereas I've seen people on that exact project, someone pay a million dollars for it, thinking they're going to get nine units. And then they get it under and they buy it and they're so excited. And I'm sitting there going, well, what happens when you end up at five? Yeah. Right. And then that five is only worth, you know, however much. And you're underwater $200,000 on that house. That's a big loss to hit, especially for a newbie. Right. And so we had, this is an, a personal example I can give you. There, we had a project in, uh, in East Boston where we were permitting it and I bought it because I knew the as of right I could do a three unit. Right. After two years of battling on the project with the neighborhood, I ended up permitting an as of right three family. Mm -hmm. Right. Our in, and after two years, the investors ended up getting back a return on the sale of the lot. I think like 4%, like, mm -hmm. right? We got out with, a, I took a loss because I had to carry the interest and there was other expenses. So it lost me like 15 or 20 grand. I was like, but for the investors, they got back their money at like a 4% return, but that was a doomsday scenario, yep. right? So I think anytime you're trying to do an entitlement, whether it's a single family or up to a large project, you're you know trying to protect the downside yeah. risk and understanding it. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, it fundamentally comes down to understanding the market, right, and what you can, what you may be able to do, what you definitely could do, and what you can't do. And how else, though, in terms of like a deal structure, you talk about contingent deals. Do you protect your downside risk with contingencies and, and entitlement? Yeah. You know? So I think the best way to look at a contingent offer, right? There's really two two deals that work well for a contingency. There's the opportunity where the price that the person wants is just too high on the open market. And it's just going to sit if they want that number, right? So using Sky Tower, for an example, that was just on the market. It was on LoopNet, right, as a warehouse for sale. But, like, we, were, we looked at it as, like, okay, well, yeah, it's a warehouse listed on LoopNet, which no one looks at. And it was, like, okay, this is actually not just a warehouse. It's over an acre lot in the heart of Everett. So we were able to come in. We offered the guy exactly what he wanted. Hmm. We just asked for time. Right, and it had been on the market for seven months. He hadn't received any offers. So for us to come in and say, "Hey, we need twelve months because we're going to entitle this, and we'll give you exactly what you're looking for." In that scenario, he was pumped. He got the, he got his number, right? And yeah, he had to wait a year, but he got his number. So you know that in that scenario, it worked. On the another side of an opportunity is where it's someone who maybe doesn't need to sell, but you're going to give them more than they're mm -hmm. looking for. And in that scenario, you say to the seller and you're like, okay, hey, this is your house. Um, you know, I know you, you, you're living here. It's, it's probably worth 600,000 today if we were to list this on the market. I'll pay you 800,000, but I need 12 months and a couple six month extensions, right? <laughs> <laughs> depending, on the, depending on the community. Um, but when you, if you picture that conversation with an owner who's in their head, has been thinking that their single family was worth six. Right. And Jesus Rick shows up 
offering <laughs> an extra 200 grand, like they're ecstatic. Did it come with the halo and everything? Yeah, halo? yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so then I, you know, so then I come in and, you know, they get that extra 200,000. Yes, they have to give us time. But what that does is it's able to protect the downside risk. So what's my risk on that? My offer, my, my offer is contingent on approvals of a certain number of mm -hmm. units. My deposits are contingent and they'll be released if I get denied. And so now I'm only risking survey, legal fees, and architectural fees, mm. right? So you're able to keep that, uh, the amount you can lose on these to a much lower level. And that allows you to then, from our standpoint, like I'm all about, we have probably 20 projects in different stages mm -hmm. of entitlements because I'll, I know only like 50 to 70% of them are gonna hit, yeah. but that still works great for me. Because if, if I'm only losing a small amount, but I'm making huge money through entitlements, I'll continue yeah. to add projects. Um, mm. You know, I think one thing too, though, we're starting to see, and people need to be careful of, a lot of people, because the values of these projects has gone down so significantly over the last six months, you just really need to be careful about what your starting price is. I get calls all the time from someone being like, hey, I've got this project under agreement. We're in the we're about to go to the ZBA and it's gonna get approved for seven units. I'm like, oh, well, you know, what do you what's your land basis? I always ask, what's your land basis? And they're like, oh, you know, we bought it for, you know, uh one eight. <laughs> and I'm like, well, good luck. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. maybe back huh. Eight months ago, someone might have jumped at that opportunity, but now you're underwater on what you're entitling it at. So just be strategic in figuring out what that offer number is. Yeah. It, it obviously has been a major adjust, uh, adjustment in the market right now as, as rates have risen and things like that. So that's always a challenge, especially through, I can imagine, through the entitlement process as you're going forward. And you've got 12, 18 months, 24 months. Now, usually, you know, the market works in your favor oftentimes, but not always. But to go back to the point where you said, oh, I, I saw the vision of moving over to East Boston, even in that case, like I would, you know, I'm gonna, not to pat you on the back too much, but I come in you like, you saw that before other people did. And there was a risk there that you had to take and you had to be willing to trust in your own vision uh, as, as opposed to what other people were just not. Cause they're like, I don't see a market here yet. And so there's some risk there that you were willing to take and some, you know, perceived risk perhaps in your part, but you believed in your vision, right? I mean, that's the only way to, yeah, to and I mean, get across I think, that gate. I think any of these like moves or like people think it, you know, some people think we're crazy for like the stuff we're entitling and moving forward with. Mm. And, um, but I, I look at it like this. It's like, I'm always confident in the decisions we're making. I'm not in the deal if I don't think it's going to be success. We've never lost money, right? The, no investors ever lost money on a deal. Um, you know, yeah, we've lost, we've had, we've, me personally has lost money because I've tried to entitle something and I've lost, you know, it hasn't got approved, yeah. right? So there's, there are times that it costs me money, but investors have never lost money. And, you know, I think we just, you know, continue to try to put ourselves into situations where we're able to succeed. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's kind of our core business yeah. for us. So um, just kind of along those lines, just pivoting a little bit, right? Like, so you kind of went big, big bed in Worcester, yeah. right? With Cove, um, you talk about that progression from you know kind of being really Metro Boston and then looking at that specific opportunity and that that market and um, you know what what led you to that? Yeah, so I'm I'm a big proponent of really understanding your markets, right? And so for me, when I when that lead was first brought to me, the answer was no, right? Some you know they they go those guys who had the site under agreement, they took me out to dinner. 
They wanted to talk about me joining them and permitting it. And my answer was, yeah, I don't do, I don't do Worcester. Right. I like, I like to see my projects from each other. Right? <laughs> Perfect world. I'd like to be able to see all my construction sites from a roof deck that I'm standing on. Right. But in the, in this scenario, they were like, come out and see the site. So the next day, I got in my car, I drove out to the site, climbed up on the roof of one of the old brick buildings that was there. And I looked down at Polar Park, which was at the time of just a big hole in the ground under construction. And I was like, that, I was like, that's going to be the field, like right there. And it was immediately, I was like, there's, this is different. And it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity to build on that site. So that's what pulled me into the Worcester market. Will we do another deal in Worcester? Yeah. Right now, no. Right? Because we're concentrating on this. It's 173 units. Um, I wouldn't want to build in Worcester if it wasn't attached to Polar Park right now. Mm -hmm. Like our site is the number one site. So we're fired up about that. If I was like five blocks away, I'd be looking at us being like, I wish I had that site. <laughs> right, right, right. So right, that's, right, right. Yeah. you know, I think, you know, in that scenario, it's like getting, you know, look, location, location, yeah. location, right? We have the best location. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's really what, what everything in real estate comes down to is that yeah. cliche, location, and, and like, location, location, for sure. And, and micro, micro, micro yeah. location, too, right? We talk like about you're that talking lot. about, we, we talk about that. We've talked about that for years. And, um, you know, you just mentioned like the, the Jeffrey's Point scenario, right? Like that micro location within Eastie is so, has such a competitive advantage over other locations in Eastie. And that site, the micro site of Cove abutting the park has such an advantage over sites two, let alone five or 10 blocks away, right? right. So, um, you know, really understanding that. And I think that's where a lot of n newbies, to use your, your phrase for the sake of yeah. consistency here, I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble is they don't understand the difference between, you know, an eighth of a mile here or a quarter mile there, which in some of these markets makes all the difference, like all the difference massive swings in value. Yeah, I mean, I just was talking to someone on the ride over here about a, a site in Worcester, and my recommendation was, I was bail. Mm. It's like bail, and he's like, but you're all in on Worcester. I'm like, no, I'm all in on the Cove site. But like, if this, your site, which is like, you know, 10 blocks into the heart of Worcester, which doesn't, you know, check the boxes that I would want to be when there's 3,000 units in entitlements out there, Right. What I, you know, that's the main thing. Like if you're looking at these larger scale projects, like what's going to separate you from the other inventory, mm. especially in markets where there's a lot Everett, right. Or in Worcester right now, there's tons of product coming on. So are you able to deliver something that separates yourself or are you just going to be another one of the, yeah. uh, one of the, the projects? Yeah. So. And, and, and along those lines, do you have like a, a strike box, so to speak, that you look for with your project? And they, I mean, obviously, premium location, you know, within an emerging market that you that you have identified, obviously. But is there anything else like deal size or structure or types of product? So I think obviously, the, I think we want to understand the market, right? So if we're looking at a condo project, it's most likely going to be in an area where we truly understand the pricing. And we understand the neighborhood groups and the entitlements, right? And I, if I, I get brought like great deals, alleged great deals, right, <laughs> in Somerville or in Cambridge or Brookline, and I'm not going to learn those markets. It's just not going to be something I'm going to learn. Maybe, who knows, in 10 years, 15 years, I'll do a project out there. But right now, I'm, I have no interest in that. Mm -hmm. So if someone brings it to me, I'll loop in another developer who I know does projects there and pass it off to him. Maybe we'll help fund it or do something, you know, sell it. But 
it won't be something for me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you look at where our projects are, like in Everett, obviously, is like our main concentration of units, right? And that's a lot to do with the, with the you know, the political climate of Everett, mm -hmm. right? They have a very pro-development growth mayor, right, who wants to see, and that's the direction that the, the planning board and the zoning board are, you know, they want to see projects that are in the right locations, Right, because that's the the, the yep. Everett is set up in a way where it's like there's the dwelling districts. You can bring a project forward, add one unit to a dwelling di district project, denied, mm. right, denied. But then you can bring Sky Tower in the right area of Everett, in the industrial area where they want change, and you can get approved. So like when we look at communities we want to go into, we don't want to go into a community that is anti-development and and doesn't want us there, right? It's just it's too exhausting. There's too much of a battle, right? And so we're trying to find communities that are still excite, excited to see change. Yeah. And, and I think that's another, just an, again, we talked about sort of risk and how you kind of understand. It's really understanding whether it's the market pricing or how towns are encouraging development or not. And, and sort of it's, it's a very, um, and I was actually struck by, he said, a good deal in Somerville is not a deal for me because I just don't know it. And this might be, one town next to Everett, it's like a butts Everett, and it's it's so right. it's remarkable. You have that, I would say, sort of restraint and self control to to not just be like, oh, of course we're going to do it. It's just right next door. But I don't, you know, to say to have the um, foresight or wherewithal to say, no, I, I don't know that market yet. So I'm going to give that to someone else or let someone else do that project. Maybe there's another way we can work together. But uh, that's impressive because you don't see that a lot. Yeah, and then you know, one question I I get a lot of times is like, well, hey Rick, how do I learn about a, a market? Right? How do how would I figure out if a site can be permitted or what people want to see here? Right? And, and this is a little trick of the trade. So for anyone who wants to look at a community, you can go on to their website. So the city of Everett or Somerville, all the planning and zoning board minutes and uh, videos are typically on there. You can watch them. Right. And you're able to then log in and you can actually see what projects and watch the type of results people mm -hmm. are getting. Right. And the other best thing to do, you'll quickly see on the agenda the same name coming up. Call him. Lawyers. There's a reason why he's the attorney on 70% of the projects. Right. Because he's the guy. Right. So if you want to get in. Or if the I, girl. Or the girl. Yeah. So if I was to, that's, this would be my process. If you threw me into L.A. and I wanted to entitle something, this is what I would do. I would go onto the website. I'd watch the, the zoning board. I'd see who the attorneys are, and I'd set up lunches. Cut and film. Boom. Cut and film. Cut and film. <laughs> right? No, but the truth of the matter is, but you know, what you're describing there is actually running a business and doing the hard work that often people are just like, I'll just buy real estate because it's easy, or I can develop it. And, you know, this is where you run into these problem stories and people just collapsing because they don't hire the right advisors, they don't do the research, they don't actually build the business, they don't empower their team. And so that's why you've had the success, I think, are big parts of the success that you've had to grow this business so quickly. So yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit, though, how do you, you know, when do you start to think about sort of building your capital stack and, and you know, whether you're going through the entitlement process and when you're looking to raise, you know, debt or equity and, and how you how you think about that for each of the deal types you're working on? Yeah. So on, you know, on the small condo projects, it's, it's you know, those are very simple when you're in looking at a capital stack. There's the first position debt. There's our own money that we put in. And then there's the some type of investor capital. Right. Very simple stack. And. 
when I was starting to get into these large projects, I was like, oh, it will be the same. And then you quickly realize that that's not the case. And when I was getting started, Mike Procopio was like, you know, a mentor to me answering my questions. And I remember him being, I was like, Mike, everybody keeps telling me that every deal is different. Every deal is financed differently. How can I understand a deal if every deal is different? And he goes, every deal is different. <laughs> and I was like, this, everybody says that. And it's true, though. You start looking at these large projects, the capital stack, every single project, even our own, our different projects all have different stacks. And what a capital stack means is really just if you're looking at the you know, using a basic capital stack, say it's a million dollar project, right? Maybe you have a $600,000 first position loan. Then following that, that first position $600,000 loan, there might be a piece of MES debt, right? So MES debt would be a second position loan at a higher interest rate than the first, most likely needs an intercreditor agreement with the first position. So they need to work together and agree, right? And so then you've got this second step. So maybe that goes from you know, now you're at 60, you know, uh, 600 up to 700. Mm. Okay, well now maybe there's a pref equity investor, right? Doesn't have a note, right? But he gets a guaranteed return and it's paid first, right? So maybe he puts in, you know, a, another chunk, another 100 or another 200. That brings the capital stack a little higher. Now you've got that final gap to fill, right? And then that's the final gap that you need to split most likely between the GP, general partnership, and the limited partners, Right. And there's other different types of grants or things that can help fill that gap. But then it gets down to brass tacks and it says, OK, we're going to put up 10 percent of that remaining gap. The LP is going to put up 90, which is a typical deal structure. Right. Some investors like to do 5 percent with 95 from the LPs. Mm. They're putting in almost nothing. There's also other developers we've met who want to put in more cash because they, they want and the more cash you put in, the more say you have. The more the LP puts in, the more control they have, right? And so, but if you're looking at a typical deal stack, 10% of the money comes from the general partnership, 90% of the equity comes from the LP. Yeah. And I know, where, where do you guys usually fall? There's a little bit of a, I guess, a debate in the, in the business and sort of, you know, whether there's an objection and oftentimes, if, especially if you bring in it's like pref equity late to kind of close the gap and your LPs kind of get pissed off and so you run into problems like that. Yeah, so I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. Lessons learned, right, is like figuring out your capital stack before you're heading out and committing to different things is so important. So like, le like on future deals, we are going to be very strategic about not locking in anybody but having a, a, a plan of what it's going to look like, like I just walked you through, so it's going to be 60% mm. and then we're going to have another group and another group. And that's how the model is modeled. Mm. And now we're just trying to place people into those gaps. Whereas the problem is, is if you come in and you find a pref equity group or a mes debt group, but you the first position, you don't really know what your first position loan is going to be. Maybe they won't work together. Now you're backtracking, mm. right? Or at the end, you're trying to fill in with a pref equity that sits in a position behind the LP. Well, now the LP's money just got extremely a lot riskier, mm. right? Because all the money goes to the pref equity guy first. So you're just spinning your tires. So yes, every deal is different, but trying to come up with a strategic way of the capital stack mm before getting into it. Yeah. And and at what point are you typically going to market to, to, to raise like in the entitlement process? So something like say the 600 that we're working on together, where were you in that process or any project really that you want to talk about? But 
where where are you in the entitlement process when you're really going to the market to to, to raise raise the capital? So yeah, so a lot the the hardest part on those type of deals is that nobody wants to be in the deal until it's ready to build, <laughs> okay. right? Everyone's response is like, oh, when you have a building permit, we'll close, mm. right? So now you have to figure out: are, do you have to try to pay cash and take it down? Mm -hmm. Do you have to take out a land loan with a hard money in, uh, lender to take it down who will help you carry it to that date? Because the bank doesn't want to close till permits in hand. The equity doesn't want to close till permits in hand, right? And so now you're in this weird situation. Yeah. So like on the 600, we had to take out a hard money loan, right, to take down the parcels. And then that we then we took it through all the permitting. And then we got to the end of the permitting. And that is when all the equity came in and the debt closed, mm -hmm. right? But we had to, it was stressful, like getting yeah. that, you know, get making that decision to, take out a loan at 12%, yeah. you know, to carry it for, you know. And were, were you yeah. entitled at that point though? You were entitled, but but not permitted. Fully. Exactly, yeah. 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 So we had all, our, all of our approvals in place, but then, you know, on that type of deal, we had the contingent, our offer was contingent on approvals, not permits. Mm, right. Which if you can get an offer to agree to contingent on permit, do it. Yeah. That's totally. new, the new, like if you can say, oh, contingent on zoning and permits, permits can mean a long way out. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so, totally. You know, a lot of, of people don't understand the difference costs, yeah. with that too. Exactly. Right? And some so. attorneys will come back and like they'll, your attorney might be like, yeah, well, this isn't going to hold up in court. Yeah. Right. So like you just be prepared that if it came down to it and they wanted to walk, you wouldn't win in court tying them up to a building permit. Right. Right. So, um, but yeah, so I mean, that's, you know, that is a difficulty on the, on these type mm. of deals. Mm. Um, what else, what other, any other lessons learned along the way? Any, you know, you've obviously in a short period of time had a lot of successes, but any other kind of lessons or difficulties or challenges overcome? Um, I mean, I think if you're going to get in, so you want to grow your business step by step, right? Don't go jumping into something that's too big. And I think that's mm -hmm. one thing that we were able to do properly, right? So it, and honestly, it wasn't that the 600, the 600 we permitted for 85 because that's what we could get on the site. Mm -hmm. It's actually got, it was really lucky that we permitted that before we permitted a building like the Cove because that's where we were able to learn a lot of lessons. Mm -hmm. And it 85 was already really big and mm -hmm. it was a lot of work and it was a lot for me to get the loan and all that. So I think being strategic, it was, you know, we got lucky that that was the project because if it had been bigger, I wouldn't have been able to get the loan. So then I would have been in a situation where I would have then never had the credibility because I would have had to sign up another developer to partner with me. And then they would have been like, oh, well, you didn't do it. He did it. Yeah, right. And then you're always, you know, you're, you know, never. So it's the right size. So and then you jump right to 173. Right. Now, yeah. you know, double, double it. You go. Right. But yeah. now, now I've it been another couple years. Balance sheet had grown. 600 was done. We could take people through a done building. Right, and now they're like, okay, now. and I hear it's leasing yeah. up like hotcakes. <laughs> we got this brokerage; they're absolutely <laughs> killing the lease up, forty percent already. Charles Gate Real Estate, oh, interesting. Um, okay, and Man. and understanding when you're doing like going from a, a, a renovation to a new construction, there's a lot of risks there, and I think some people bite off more than they should chew yeah. when they go from a reno into their first new construction because a lot happens in the dirt. Yeah. And I think people just be careful, right? So when you're getting into your first new construction, understand the soil, 
you know, get geo reports done that show you what's there, have a structural engineer and an architect who know what they're doing, because you can quickly be 200, 300, 400, 500K underwater on a project because the soil was bad. Playing the dirt, you're going to get dirty. Exactly. You know what that's from? No. The Wire. Come on. Great show. The best show. You've got to go start developing in Baltimore, maybe. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably some good opportunity there. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so what else, what are you looking forward to as uh, you're growing um, Volne, Evo, Origin Capital, uh, and the rest of the business lines? Um, I mean, or Evo Origin funding is something I'm really excited about. It's I had been investing in other people's projects over the past few years, and most of them are people just in my network, the people I have known through social media or just friends of mine. And, you know, that's from my standpoint, it can be completely passive, but I can also be involved if they do need something, mm. right? And so I think that's where Evo Origin funding is different than other groups is that if a developer does need something, we can actually help with it. Whereas a lot of these money guys, they can't help you find a, a surveyor because you need it done quicker or something, or you need a favor from a plumber to come in and do like, we're able to help. So I think we're really excited about that. Um, we just closed our first round of uh, equity raise on that fund. Cool. And so we're deploying that right now. Um, we've got a lot of great projects coming up. We actually just have a a really large one in Lexington that we're excited about. We're closing next week. It's uh, a 7,000 square foot house and then a subdivision with three other houses that will all be about 6,500 square feet. Nice. nice. So they'll all be about 4 million bucks when they're done. Um, and so we've partnered with a great uh, local Lexington developer on that. And so that will be our, our first really big full stack fund mm. through the through Evo Origin. Cool. Awesome. And um, uh, a couple of things I think I also want to ask you about because just getting to know you better as we're working together and things I've noticed, you know, the, the, a few important things that I, I find I think are really good lessons learned. And one of those is just communication and your communication with your investors and partners and deals and, and things that I've, uh, that I've noticed. Is that something that you found is super important? Yeah. And it's something that people miss on. Everyone keeps, uh, and we, I talk to other investors who invest with other developers or in other projects. And I've invested a ton of startups over the years. And like, the most frustrating thing is you invest and then your money goes into a dark hole <laughs> and then no one tells you what's happening, yeah. right? And so like we made it very, you know, back in the day, I used to always send my own. I'd sit down and type up an email the first week of every month to, on every project, right? Very basic. Then obviously Chris came on board and we started getting, you know, videos and photos done every single month so that now these investors are getting a detailed PDF that shows photos and actions and where things are at. And, and a lot, and there are a lot of times where there's not good news, yeah. right? But you still need to share that, right? Hey, we're tied up in the neighborhood. They won't let us head to the ZBA. Project is going slow. Mm. But you tell them. Right, because just if you just don't say it and you sit in the back, their their brain's gonna start spinning. They're gonna start talking shit about you. Yeah, it's it's far worse to not communicate than right. to deliver bad news. Right. So anyone out there who's taking on investor capital, you like you need to be the fiduciary of that money. Treat it like it's your own, but understand that that person needs to know what's happening. Mm. Right, and it's it's it needs to be the expectation that it's monthly. Mm. Like I don't think you should go more than a month in telling somebody even the basic update of. You know, hey, we're delayed on our permit. Working on it. Yeah. 
like, you know, so I think we take that same, we do that same thing when it comes to communicating with our contractors or communicating with condo associations or landlords, right? It's just, if you, if they have a question, you get back to them. Mm. Um, and so I'd say that, you know, communication is key. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that I've, I've noticed is that you, you really put an emphasis on, 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 um, building the right team, right? And so a team of experts, whether it's outside vendors or whether it's your own team internally, but really making sure you've got people who have sort of been there, done that before, not just trying to figure it out, you know, on your own or with your own team. Yeah. And I think, you know, a perfect example of that is you guys, right? So like, we were building the 600 and a lot of people were, we were heading into the start of the lease up and everyone's like, oh, like Volney management, you guys manage, you know, 600 units, 700 units, you're going to manage the 600. And I was like, no, I don't think so. And they're like, well, of course you are. And I was like, well, no, because I need to hire who's the best person because I'm the fiduciary of the investor's money. And it, at the time, and like, I don't think my brokerage and my management company is the best decision for an 85 unit ground up building, right? And so that's why we hired you guys, right? Because we wanted to hire the best who's, you know, understands the market, who can get the lease up done and knows all the, has our, knows where, you know, where all the issues can come up, right? <laughs> I don't, we don't know that. We've never done it. So, and will we ever do it? Maybe, but as of right now, no. It's just like, yeah. that's going to be something that, you know, it, it, it's the same thing with construction. Like people are always like, oh, why do you still hire general contractors? Why don't you set up your own construction company? Yeah, we could. We could hire construction people. We could hire a kid out of Suffolk to run it, right? But he's going to be in, you know, most, you're not going to get someone who's seasoned, right? So if you look at EJO general contracting, Jack's been building for over 20 years, right? You look at Callahan or NEI who are building our big buildings. I'll never understand what these guys are, are doing or understand that size project from their side of the table. And I don't want to, right? I don't want to. And then same with architects. They're like listening to architects talk about the, <laughs> with the GC about the, like the little nitty gritty stuff on the plans. Not for me, yeah. right? Not for me. I'm yeah. big picture, right? So I don't want those jobs. So yeah. it's like putting the right pieces in place. And that's really, what is a developer? A developer is someone who moves pieces around and puts pieces together to be successful. Yeah. That's, you know, that's the core business. Yeah. Well, it's smart though, because, and it's, it's hard though to do that, right? Because you feel like it's costing me more or it's, you know, or it's, uh, it's an opportunity I'm giving up. But in reality, I think the, the way you explain it is, is the right way is taking that holistic fiduciary view of this thing and say, Hey, my job is to protect and grow the investment of this as a developer and not have to worry about trying to make fees and everything or reduce my costs as much as possible. It's like, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve here with this, with this investment, with, with my capital raise, my own capital and, and that of the, my investors. So it's a, it's a, it's a great way to look at it. I think, I think a lot of people miss that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, it comes back to exactly that, right? The core of what you're trying to do you know, you need to understand that it might be more expensive to hire somebody, right? And like we, you know, our new thing is with V10 is like hire the best, right? We're like, we have a new, like we don't, we're not gonna cut corners. Yes, these guys charge a lot. There's a reason why they charge a lot, right? You hire really good architects. You hire really good, you know, you know, people to do different roles. And I think you should try to do that across all avenues of your mm. business. Mm. You know, cutting corners is just gonna cause problems. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, you think you're saving a buck and it costs you three, you know, a Easily. year out. Yeah. And or more. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we, we talk so much about assembling the right teams and understanding to your point, like where your limitations are and, 
the breadth of experience that good partners bring to the table so they can they can see the landmines that you don't even know are out there, right? Yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's a, it's a big thing, especially when you get into these big projects, right? Like you gotta, you gotta be able to execute and, and not try to, you know, over, overextend. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at from the property management side, like through my career, it's actually been a kind of a whirlwind, <laughs> right? I had a property manager when I started buying the rentals, right? Because my thought was I'm working in finance, I want to keep renovating and buying more, but I can't concentrate on the tenants or lease up or maintenance, right? So I had a property manager and they managed my first, you know, five, six buildings, mm. right? Then it got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm now there's enough scale here where it's like, maybe I should take these back because it's worth it for me to figure out management, right? And bring it in house. Mm -hmm. Right. And then now you look at the point where we've gone to the other side of the table and now I'm back hiring a property <laughs> manager. Right. So I think you need to look at it and, and be strategic about all these mm. decisions. Like there's not one right answer. Right. There could even be an asset like you could there could be an asset that's managed by someone else that's, you know, has a, is a better manager for something, even though you have your own management. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's really about finding that vision and, and taking a holistic view of things. That's really, really, um, I think you hit the nail on the head in a lot of cases. Um, but kind of as we sort of kind of wrap and wind down here, what are, you, what are you most excited about moving forward, whether it's any one of your own projects or just the city in the greater Boston area or Worcester area in general? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously the Cove site, you know, we're, we're doing foundations this week. I think that that's going to, everyone keeps always being like, oh, Worcester's happening, Worcester's happening, Worcester's happening. Like, I truly believe that this is the breakthrough, mm -hmm. right? Like we are going to deliver something to the market that has never been seen out there and we are going to demand high rents and we're going to give those people what the, the type of product that they deserve for that rent, mm. right? And so I am really excited to go through that journey and, you know, even with increased rates and increased construction costs, we did not allow the building to change from a design or finish standpoint, mm. right? It is going to be rock and roll. It's gonna be, <laughs> I mean, it, the Cove is obviously, it's named the Cove because it was the old Sir Morgan's Cove music venue where the Rolling Stones played. Yeah. And that vibe is going throughout, whether it's through murals and graffiti and guitars and like awesomeness, mm. right? And so I'm just excited to take that dream and make it yeah. a reality. That's fantastic. And I love that because we often talk about how it's so important to incorporate the sort of the brand and the marketing from the very start of it and yeah. all the things like you talk about, the, not just the well, the design of the building is also what should be informing the brand and the murals. And when that can all interconnect, you can really make a market and really sort of drive that demand that's going to help you achieve good absorption uh, numbers and good rents ultimately. So. Yeah. So it's, it's exciting to hear that because it's another one that oftentimes not thought of. It's like, oh, what can we build? Can we put, you know, 100 units here? Let's put 100 units. Who cares? In a box. No big deal. The people will rent it. It's like, no, it's much better when you actually think about what's the, what's the, what's the, you know, what, what does the market want? But more importantly, what's our vision to really deliver and make a market here? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's thinking of these things early. Mm. And not at the finish line, right? Because totally. it's like when they go to hire a property manager to do the lease up, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh, hey, uh, you know, what's the brand? What's the feel? What's mm. the what's?" And you're like, by that point, the building's built, yeah, right. Yeah. All, all the design decisions have been made. All that it's too late for that, yeah. right? So you know, I think that's on the six hundred. We kind of learned that. Like we put out, we feel like a, a great product, but the overall design 
and like cohesiveness, it could have been better. Right. And yeah. like, I think we're learning like now on Cove, on Cove and on Sky. Mm. Sky, we're year, you know, that building won't open for five, six years. Mm. We're yeah. already in the nitty gritty of like what we want the building to feel like and yeah. the and the vision yeah. and, you know, the finishes and stuff like that. Yeah. So my, my, my head's spinning right now on what, uh, what, you know what stone songs are going to be in the in the in the videos <laughs> the jukeboxes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Caleb make sure you file that away for when we're releasing that thing up <laughs> so now that that's we we tell clients all the time we're talking to people like they're like oh what's not time for it's not time to think about marketing or leasing or management yet but it yes. it cannot be early enough yeah. To, to, to really dive into that because that's how you can maximize value for sure. So that's a good way to think when about it. When you think of lease ups from your guys' side, what, when do you think? Because obviously there's the problem with construction timelines. Mm -hmm. There's the problem with pushed out CO dates. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you make that decision of when you activate a lease up? Yeah. And how do you do it in a, in a manner that you're not? I know there's some projects that I've seen in South Boston where like they leased up like six. 60 of 80 units mm. and then the CO didn't come in for like six months and they have all these people. So how do you yeah, make that decision? Yeah. I, there's two parts of it. There's two phases, right? You want to start as early as possible with the sort of branding and establishing the strategy that you want to go to market with and having everything kind of ready to go so that you can you can then adjust and adapt to the schedule. But also yeah. make sure you're incorporating the messaging and the branding and making sure all these things tie together well. That's so starting as early as possible, like you can't start early enough on that stuff. Right. But then, yeah, you don't want to start the active leasing too soon. You want to start sort of building demand, you know, having people express their interest, capturing kind of the leads and the interest in the market, and communicating with them. But the active leasing really needs to kind of wait till a little bit closer on because what happens is two things that happen. One is the example you just gave, where a, a, you're leasing up a building that's just not ready, and you're having to put up people in a hotel or whatever else to you know help them get out of their lease, move somewhere. There's all, all kinds of disasters happening there. But the second problem is um, people oftentimes aren't willing to take the risk of paying the market rents you want to achieve because they don't, they're not confident the building's going to be delivered on time. So you, you have yeah. both of those problems that you have to you build a good quality um, approach to when you're actively starting leasing. There's some seasonality that goes along with yeah. it too, of course, yeah, and, and, and a number of other factors. size dependent too yeah. on a building, right? Like if you know, like Cove's 173 units, right? So you know even in like optimal circumstances in every respect, full absorption is going to take some amount of time, right? Whatever that amount of time is. And so Six Mike's months. point, right, well, yeah. <laughs> so as you get closer, you know, you just can, you can start active leasing further out Right to yeah. like a date that you know you're gonna have a CO like yeah. barring like something absolutely wildly unforeseen, right? And then you can start backfilling as you really approach CO and you know those dates that were probably too aggressive to commit to 60 or 90 days before, right? So I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can play it again depending on the size of the buildings. But I mean, it's uh, to Mike's point, it's a whole comprehensive strategy that that needs to be executed, and you know I think um, that's something that we've been able to do really well on a, on a lot of big, bigger projects. What do you, what about the idea of a model unit, right? Mm -hmm. Cause like, I think it's such a, a tough thing from a development side to get done, mm. right? Cause you're like, you're asking everyone to jump ahead and mm -hmm. like you could do, you know, the way we did it, the 600, we just pushed the model unit a little bit faster. It was the first unit that was getting finished, yep. right? Every sub started there and worked their way out. That's how we did our model. But then you hear of other projects where like, they're literally building out a unit six months ahead of time, mm -hmm. right? And then reconnecting the plumbing and all that. So mm -hmm. like, what is, what is, what strategy have you seen work? And I think 
know, in those scenarios, if you're not leasing up already, can mm. renderings get the job done? Because mm -hmm. you're not leasing until it's almost done anyway. So yeah, we we are we're proponents uh, most of the time of accelerating a model unit because it can help in a lot of ways. There's two reasons that it works: is because people can actually go in, touch and feel, and see what they're getting. Uh, the second part is it actually gives you a, a unit that's finished so you can make sure there's no, the construction is what you want, the design is what you want, there's no changes that need to be made, quality the quality's control, good. Yeah. Quality, it's a quality control exercise for you as a developer too, so that's why we're big fans. Now, the timing, if you're trying to push something so far ahead where you don't even have real access to the building, it's the site's a disaster, it's useless. Right. So yeah. you, you ha it's another one where you gotta sort of balance the timing and especially with lease ups it works because you're not generally starting active leasing more than a few months ahead of CO, expected CO, and you can usually get a model done in that yeah. time. Some of the times, we've run into this in the past, where we've tried to accelerate or recommended accelerating a model unit for a condo project well ahead of time, and it's just like getting on the site's a disaster. It's like yeah. just, so it, it doesn't work. There's so much psychology that goes into any of these decisions, right? You know, particularly on a commitment to buy versus lease and, you just need people in like a really comfortable psychological state, right? In like good environment, you know, climate controlled, clean. You're yeah. not worried about, you know, seeing some of the stuff you'd see on a construction site or, you know, walking by a bank of porta potties or, you know, yeah. that's like, uh, you know, those are the good examples yeah. of what you can find, right? Like on a construction site. So, um, Again, a lot of it's really project dependent, and, and um, on the on the for sale versus for rent side, there's definitely some some differences on a general level. But um, you know, I, I would say each project kind of have to look at it holistically and, and specifically to that project, and then and come up with a strategy. Yeah. What about pre-selling on the condo side? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a big proponent of sold out by CEO, right? Like, on a small condo building, like between you know, 15 units and under, like. If you can deliver a CO with 100% of the units under agreement, right, ready to close in the next couple months, that's the perfect project. Yeah. Other people disagree. Other yeah. people think you're leaving money on the table. Yeah. So like, I, I I fall in the camp that you're generally leaving a little bit of money on the table. You're de-risking though, right? So that's right. that's the that's the flip side, and also you're accelerating the return of the capital. So there's you know it depends how you're calculating your return over time, IRR multiples, and how that works for you, but. But at, from an absolute dollar standpoint, you're leaving money on the table. There's like really no other way to think about it, except for, um, not except for, there are ways to do it better to pre-sell with good collateral, really good renderings, good marketing, obviously that sends quality signals and, and gives people confidence that they can buy and this product's gonna be delivered. Developer track record also helps, frankly, to, so that they have some faith that they're gonna follow through and build a high quality project. Things like, things like that all matter to help you maximize the sale price um, in a pre-sales environment before a product's completed. Uh, and for smaller units, it, it's easier, makes more sense. As the, unit, as the building sizes get bigger though, it's virtually impossible to get to 100% or even close to that yeah, pre-CO yeah. because it's just, there's not enough demand in the market and there are always those buyers who are gonna wanna walk in and see and touch and feel these units. And so there's a big strategy in terms of like unit release, pricing schedules and, and different factors, um, especially on the for sale side that, that come into play there. Um, and in order to sort of maximize where you know a, a developer may find their risk tolerance in there and how far they want to try to push the market on pricing, to all these things come into play when we're recommending kind of an absorption schedule and pricing uh, strategy on, on different projects. So. Nice. 
So, but uh, yeah, any other questions you have for us? I think this is, I thought we were interviewing you here, but that's <laughs> awesome. Just did the Larry David, yeah. the, yeah. the flip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, yeah. I got to learn a little welcome, bit while. Welcome to the Ricky Belvo podcast. <laughs> yeah. I got to learn a little bit while I'm here. Um, no, this has been great, guys. Has been. Uh, thanks for having me. I will say, uh, as we wrap up, I'm, I'm very, obviously, we got to know each other working together, which is awesome, but uh, you're a fantastic teacher, just by the way, you're answering questions and I, talking. I mean, and I really didn't peg you for a student, but you probably got an A in that real estate finance <laughs> yeah. class, the way you broke down the cap stack, yeah. that was impressive. I think I think a lot of people are going to have a lot to yeah. learn from this episode, so yeah. thanks for being here. It's awesome working with you yeah. and looking forward to more work and more conversations. Awesome. Thanks, right. guys. Thanks, right. See you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate, and I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.